Hello, and welcome to this podcast series on anesthesia and intensive care. In this podcast, I thought I would discuss about which patients actually deserve an anesthetic, and perhaps when we should consider anesthetizing patients. The first one to think about is what about a patient hit by a car? They have a fractured femur and have experienced trauma with pulmonary contusions. Should that patient undergo an anaesthetic immediately to repair that femur, or should we wait? What about a 15-year-old dog with a mammary tumour and pulmonary mass? Should we remove both the mammary tumour and the pulmonary mass to try and cure this patient of their cancer? By giving you these two cases, it's about thinking through a f- philosophy of when we should actually anaesthetize patients and what we should think about before we anaesthetize these patients. For a moment, I'm going to assume that all these patients are hemodynamically stable, they have reasonable lung function that would be appropriate, and that there's no clinical reason or evidence of shock to cancel the case. In other words, they appear clinically stable at this point in time, and it would appear as though they could tolerate an anesthetic without any questions. So I want you to think about the other factors that can influence anesthesia and why would we want to anesthetize the patient and what could the consequences be of the anesthetic we're about to give. This is philosophical, but these things do play out in our patients and they're important to think about. When we have healthy elective patients coming in, there aren't many questions we think about, we give an anesthetic, we spay them or neuter them and wake them up. But let's go back to this patient that was hit by a car. It has pulmonary contusions and a fracture that needs repair. In humans, femoral fractures are often rapidly repaired after trauma because of the risk of fat emboli in the lungs, which is a devastating and potentially fatal condition. So those fractures are repaired rapidly because of the consequences downstream of not doing that repair. But in our dogs, that's not an issue, and we don't seem to see many fat emboli in the lungs. So now if we take our dog that's still stable, but has a femoral fracture and we subject it to surgery, we can exacerbate a primed systemic inflammatory response syndrome. There's ongoing inflammation in the lungs because of the contusions and hemorrhage that can take anywhere from 48 hours, maybe 72 hours, up to 5 days to settle down and return back to normal. There's an injured site. Surgery induces trauma and can activate that systemic inflammatory response syndrome, making pulmonary function worse, and actually lead eventually to that patient's death. This was discovered many years ago in humans, when they realized that some of their trauma patients that arrived who were anesthetized shortly after the events took place actually did a lot worse. The reason they did worse is because of the inflammatory components that were activated and primed, and all we did was add another insult through surgery, although a controlled insult, making some patients not survive and leading to negative outcomes. Is it reasonable then to wait, for example, for five or six days for all of that to settle down before we do a repair? The answer may not be because it can make the fracture more difficult to repair. To me, it's more about looking at the individual patients that are there and how they respond. I can go back to a Pekingese that had a fractured pelvis, a ruptured bladder, a transuterine resected urethra that presented after trauma 
And how did we go about repairing that? Well, the pelvic fracture wasn't repaired. The biggest problem was the dog couldn't urinate. And so Foley's catheter was placed directly into the bladder, and the bladder was drained. And the dog, in actual fact, lived with the Foley's out of its abdomen for about four to six weeks. An attempt was made early on to repair the urethra, but with all the edema that was still present after the trauma, it became impossible. And so that surgery was abandoned. It was reattempted about two and a half, three weeks later, once all the inflammation had settled down, and the surgery was far, far easier. So, by waiting, we can make some of our surgery a lot, lot easier. Out of interest, the pelvic fractures were never repaired because by the time we considered repairing them, they had become stable, fibrous tissue had started to develop, and so there was no need to repair the pelvic fractures. The ureters and so on were repaired, but the pelvic fractures were never repaired. This is something for us to think about and to think about the consequences of our actions and what they may potentially lead to in the future. To go back to the 15-year-old dog with mammary tumours and cancer, we know that our anaesthetics can, for example, make tumours grow, can cause metastasis to happen, and reduce patient survival time after anaesthetics to remove these tumours. It's 15 years old. Most of our inhalational agents and opioids will in actual fact shorten patient survival times in cancer patients because of what they do to tumour biology. We know, for example, that using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug will reduce this risk. COX-2 inhibitors have beneficial effects on cancer, but opioids don't. Yes, we can make the mammary tumour disappear and we can remove the nodule out of the lung and do a lobectomy. But is this in the best interests of a patient? It's been studied in, in patients and a large portion of public health care in Britain is spent on patients who undergo heroic surgery to save their lives. What is the consequence of doing this? Well, they land up with tubes coming out of everywhere, intubated, feeding tubes, ventilated, and they die. A lot of those patients don't even survive 24 hours after major surgery. What we do know is that if many of them underwent palliative care, they would survive for considerably longer. And they would die without any pain and discomfort with their family and friends around them. And that's something for us to think about. Because now we have the philosophy, should we cure everything or try and cure everything we can? The answer is most probably not. We shouldn't try and cure everything. What we should do is what is appropriate for the patient that is in front of us and the course it's going to follow. At the moment I'm sitting with another cat who about 18 months ago had an adenocarcinoma removed from its gastrointestinal tract. We now know on ultrasound that there's another mass in the gastrointestinal tract. More than likely it is a metastatic lesion from the original. The owners have declined chemotherapy they just want to know what the tumour is to go and do a biopsy. Should we go and biopsy that tumour? If we take a biopsy, we risk the potential of dehiscence, and the cat could die of septic peritonitis. Is this appropriate? Or should we just apply palliative care, leave the cat as is, and try and manage it to the best of our ability 
maybe consider some metronomic chemotherapy. As you can see, and I hope I've stimulated some thought in your mind, that not every patient deserves an anesthetic. There's a lot more philosophy behind this that we need to think about, but it's about thinking about our individual patients. And I'll address many of these in future episodes, because I think we need to discuss the timing of surgery and trauma patients in more detail. There's a lot more, because we know that some patients do benefit from immediate surgery. For example, a patient with a ruptured tumour that is bleeding out. If we don't fix the problem, the patient will die of hemorrhagic shock. So there's a patient who deserves an intervention, especially if they're not going to be euthanized. And so some of the patients we do approach, we need to do surgery in the immediate future. On the other hand, some we can delay that surgery from considerable periods of time until they do clinically a lot better. I think by now, many of you who are listening to this podcast would have seen patients post-trauma. They just start recovering, they start to just eat, and we put them through a surgery. And it's almost as though we've set them back about three or four days before they start to recover. What would happen if we waited another 24 or 48 hours whilst they were eating, mood switching over from a catabolic to an anabolic response, building up some reserves, and then doing the surgery? Would we alter outcome? I don't know the answer to many of these questions because we haven't studied it in veterinary medicine, but it certainly is something that we should think about. What are the consequences of our actions? And that is one of the first principles of medicine, which is do no harm. And every intervention we perform has the potential to do harm. But weighing up and balancing what is in the best interests of a patient is actually not easy. And it needs to be a group decision with everybody involved taking a decision that is in actual fact in the best interest of the patient. That's what we should do. Not what suits our individual um, specialities or our individual areas of interest or to prove whether or not we can fix something. It should be about what is the, the best thing for that patient in front of us. And so everybody should sit down and help make that decision. From the veterinarians, the veterinary nurses and the owner. Where's our patient going and what is their course? What are their underlying medical conditions for example? If we had to take one of our patients who has advanced or end-stage renal disease, for example, and needs a skin lump removed, well, that's easy. We could do it under local anesthetic. And it's something simple and quick. We could do it very, very quickly. But what happens if it's a metastatic tumor or a mast cell tumor that may require chemotherapy and others um, management after the removal of those tumors. And what are the consequences of those therapies on the already failing renal function, for example? And so many of these decisions, especially in our older patients, are not actually that easy to make. We need to put everything together, put a picture together, find out where that patient's going, what would give them the least amount of discomfort and pain, and also give them the best survival chances. And so everybody actually needs to talk. The simple answer is that there's no ideal solution for one 
particular patient. It's about what we do in work as a team and to keep track of the outcomes of these patients. Some of the frustrating cases for me, for example, are hepatic lobectomies for tumors, especially large ones that are bleeding. Often those patients to me don't do particularly well after surgery. Many become ecteric or develop a bile peritonitis, for example, and require a lot of management to get through them. Are the alternatives that we could consider in those patients instead of doing surgery? For example, microwave ablation or interventional radiology. I'm just giving them as examples because they're not well described in veterinary medicine. But would that change outcomes and how the patients continued their courses? In other words, surgery is a great easy thing to do because we can chop that bleeding tumor out. But it may not always be the best solution for that patient. And so I want to encourage all of you to think about what are the other options? The only way we'll ever know what the outcomes lead to is by tracking what happens to those patients, working out their mortality rates, changing what we do one thing at a time, and working out how it changes morbidity and mortality. And that way we'll be able to better serve our patients in the future. If you have any comments or questions, you're welcome to leave them on the Facebook page. Goodbye, and thank you for your time. Welcome to this podcast series on anesthesia and intensive care. In this podcast, I'm going to deal with a question that I often get asked. I often get asked for that magic formula of anesthetic drugs we can give to a patient in order to ensure that they have a safe and successful anesthetics. And I think with this, there's a lot of myth in what answering this question. What is the safest anesthetic protocol we have? Or in actual fact, is there a safe anesthetic protocol that we could use in our patients? And I think sadly many of us are going to be disappointed with the answer. Because although the drugs we choose for the induction or pre-medication of our patients could make a difference in anesthetic outcome, it's often a very, very small difference. Yes, for example, if a patient has liver disease or a portosystemic shunt, benzodiazepines which enhance GABA transmission may be contraindicated. And there may be some drugs that we wouldn't want to use in a dog for heart failure. But the reality is that there's perhaps specific drugs that are contraindicated in patients. But if we look at our healthy patients, does our choice of drugs make a difference? The, the CPSAF study into perioperative small animal fatalities gives us a lot of information that we could use to answer this question. And if we have a look at when patients die under anesthetics or in the perioperative period, we find that a very small percentage of patients actually die after pre-medication, about 1% of dogs and about 2% of cats. 
If we look at induction, the number of patients does increase slightly, dogs to about 6% and cats to about 8%. But if you start to work out the maths on this, you'll realise that most animals are dying in the maintenance or post-operative period. And in the maintenance period, about 46% of dogs die and 30% of cats. While in the post-operative period, that's slightly reversed, with 60% of cats dying post-operatively and 47% of dogs dying post-operatively. Our drugs made a big difference perhaps in pre-medication and induction, but more of our patients are dying during maintenance and post-operatively. And it's for this reason that we should then think about our choices of drugs. If we have a look at the causes of death, by the way, by far the majority of animals die from cardiovascular causes, 36% of dogs and 24% of cats, and respiratory causes is the next biggest topic, with 18% of dogs and 28% of cats. So if we start to now have a look at why patients die and when they die, they're dying during the maintenance and post-operative period from cardiovascular and respiratory causes. And perhaps it's not so much the choice of the drugs we make, but how we look after these patients under anesthesia that becomes more important. And what we should actually think about doing is concentrating then on monitoring our patients under anesthesia and looking after their cardiovascular system and their respiratory system. A lot of animals, especially cats, are dying post-operatively that point where we turn off the vaporizer, disconnect them from the anesthetic machine, and all our attention moves on to the next patient we're going to anesthetize. So we should in actual fact have a look at this period and realize that when we finish the anesthetic, so to speak, by turning off the vaporizer, the anesthetic hasn't ended at all. We need to continue looking after those patients in the post-operative period until they've recovered. Continue monitoring them. Because often what happens is the moment we finish that anesthetic, we turn off the vaporizer, we take all our monitoring equipment off, and that's the end of it. And perhaps that's the worst thing we can do. We need to look after these patients well into the post-operative period, throughout maintenance, and realizing that perhaps our drugs make the least amount of difference that's there. Monitoring is important because we need to concentrate our monitoring onto devices that tell us about cardiovascular and respiratory function. And if we start to have a look at some of those devices, which we will talk about in other podcasts, blood pressure, for example, is an important one. We can also have a look at pulse oximetry and capnography. And which ones give us the best or the most important information that's out there? Sometimes it's also just our hands-on clinical skills that's absolutely crucial. The highest incidence of mortality was post-operatively in cats. And if we had a look at some of those procedures, for example, dentals feature very prominently amongst it. That classical example of a shared airway. We have our endotracheal tube in place while we play inside the cat's mouth or the dog's mouth. At the end of the procedure, of course, we have to wake the cat out, remove the tube, and does laryngeal paralysis um, play a role in this? It certainly could, because we can get irritation from throat packs, for example, on the larynx. 
We also extubate cats usually slightly deeper than dogs to try and avoid laryngeal par paralysis on extubation. But we should also monitor these cats as they wake up for laryngeal paralysis and be ready to intervene if something goes wrong. If we have a look at a device like pulse oximetry and the cat or the dog is in actual fact breathing room air in that post-operative period, it will identify hypoxia for us. The saturation will decrease and perhaps values below 95 should alert us to actually institute more monitoring. And certainly below 90 or 88 percent we should supplement oxygen to those patients as they wake up. This may in actual fact be more important in our geriatric patients which have changes in lung function because of age. Perhaps they're more prone to hypoxia. We extubate them at this point in time, if you're a small patient and you're cold, you're going to start shivering. And we know that shivering, for example, can increase your oxygen consumption by up to 600%. With a massive increase in oxygen required because of the shivering process and poor ventilatory function, we do set those patients up for failure, don't we? A pulse oximeter would alert us early because the values would decrease. If the alarm values are set, we don't necessarily have to be directly looking at the device because the alarm will alert us to go and look at that patient as the values drop. They would also drop if a cat went into laryngospasm as well. So perhaps we should utilize these devices not only under anesthesia, but also in recovery. Remember, if you've got a patient on supplemental oxygen or still breathing 100% pure oxygen on an anesthetic machine, Hyperventilation will not be detected on a pulse oximeter. It is detected, however, if you're breathing room air, because saturation will fall quite quickly. So it's important to have a look at it. Capnography does tell us about ventilatory function, and it tells us about cardiac function. It's incredibly useful and fairly accurate when we've got an ET tube in place. But once we've removed the ET tube, capnography can be more difficult to monitor in our patients, to monitor respiration. So in the recovery period, it's not useful, but incredibly useful during the maintenance and the early parts in the recovery period when an ET tube's still in place. Because if the animal stops breathing, it would also alarm for us. Then there's blood pressure. And blood pressure is an important parameter to measure in our patients. Blood pressure tells us a bit about cardiovascular function. Heart rate and the values that we get from systolic, diastolic and mean pressure can actually tell us more. If you think about it from a physiological perspective, blood pressure is usually one of the last things to fall as our physiological compensatory mechanisms for hypertension usually involve an increasing in heart rate, vasoconstriction and an increase in cardiac output. And once we've exerted all those possibilities of compensation, blood pressure will fall. So blood pressure in itself falls quite late. But if we look at the relationship between heart rate and systolic or mean blood pressure, we can work out a shock index. Paying attention to it, if heart rate is high and blood pressure is normal or no, low, we may in actual fact have a problem. If the heart rate is low and blood pressure is high, most probably everything is a lot better off. So we should pay attention to those in relationship to heart rate and blood pressure. So we should continue our monitoring into that post-operative period as well to help give our patients the best possible chances of an outcome. Also remember that we have all our hands on monitoring to help us. 
Small animals will be cold. They're usually cold in the periphery as well. We should heat them up and make, try and get them back to a normal body temperature in that time period. But also, if temperature doesn't distribute in their body equally, this maldistribution of temperature is also an indicator of shock. And patients who are not warming up efficiently could be an indicator of some circulatory abnormality that we're missing. The other side to that is, neurologically, they should recover in a very, very predictable fashion. From when we discontinue the anesthetic agent through extubation, getting up into sternal recumbency and becoming active. And patients that are showing delayed anesthetic recoveries require more attention. I mentioned portosystemic shunts right at the beginning, but those are animals, for example, prone to hypoglycemia. And hypoglycemia can be incredibly common in these patients. If they don't recover as predictable, remember to check their glucose. I always check their glucose before I start the anesthetic, right at the beginning when I place my gelco, the little bit of blood that flashes back into the needle. I use that just to do a, a quick stick glucose. It sets my baseline to know where I'm going. Is it normal? Is it low? Or is it high? And based on that I adjust the fluids. If it is low I will add glucose to some of their maintenance fluids or put them on a maintenance um, drip which actually in fact has glucose in it. And then at the end of the procedure, depending on how long it's taken, or perhaps during that procedure, about every hour to two hours, I would recheck their blood glucose to make sure that it's within a normal range. But if it has been normal for all those checkpoints and they fail to recover, go back and check a glucose because it could be low. We also know that their metabolism is not normal. But looking after them is absolutely vital. And perhaps that's the most important responsibility we have as an anaesthetist is to look after the physiology of our patients to make sure it's normal during that period of time that they cannot do it because we've abolished a lot of their reflexes or their ability to compensate because of our anaesthetic agents. What I hope you've started to realize in this talk that it's not so much about the drugs we choose but it's actually how we go about looking after our patients. And the better we look after our patients, the better they will do. And yes, that does start in the preoperative period when we start to pre-medicate them. And it extends all the way through until they recover from that anesthetic, become sternly recumbent, can look after their own airways, and hopefully are mobile and ready to go home. We have a large choice of drugs that we can choose from. That choice is less important. What we know from, from, from evidence is to use drugs that we're familiar with rather than to use a novel or new drug that you've never tried before and don't understand what it does to our patients. I often use the example of the first heart transplant that was done. Those patients were anaesthetized on thiopentone, maintained with halothane, given some opioids for example, and that was it. And those patients did well because they understood and knew those drugs and knew what they did to the physiology of our patients. And so being familiar with the drugs we use helps because we can predict what is going to happen. For example, isoflurane is a vasodilator. It drops blood pressure. We can predict that and if we're used to treating it, we will almost start to manage it before it becomes a problem. If we do a lot of total intravenous anesthesia, for example, that vasodilatation is not a problem and you can maintain a better blood pressure sometimes on intravenous anesthetics because you can avoid that vasodilatation. 
by the same means our alpha 2 agonists are vasoconstrictors and generally will produce a better blood pressure for you it may offset some of the vasodilatation caused by isoflurane on the other hand you could use ACP which is an alpha blocker and may drop blood pressure to some extent or stop vasoconstriction from happening but at very very low doses that effect is very very small normally so we can predict the effects of our drugs and know how to manage them if we're very very familiar with the drugs that we often use and that's why sometimes when practitioners ask me for the advice I ask them what drugs do you commonly use in your patients and adjust those drugs so that they use drugs that they're comfortable with and that they know what the effects are rather than introducing them to a new system at a time when it can cause a lot more stress to them doing a procedure and worrying about the anesthetic agent that they're using so sometimes my advice is very simple use drugs that you are familiar with but maybe we can make some subtle adjustments because of underlying disease that is there the last thing that I wanted to mention in this, this, this podcast is to say correct the physiology of your patient as much as you can before the anesthetic because that will make the anesthetic considerably safer for you and easier to manage if the patient has heart disease and you've just diagnosed it and they are not stable and you're doing an elective procedure delay it stabilize their cardiovascular disease start them on appropriate medication whether that's anywhere from pimibendin for example to Lasix um, furosemide ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers etc and get them stable once they become stable it makes your anesthetic a lot easier the same is true for dogs with portosystemic shunts treat them medically and try and optimize their medical management as much as you can do before you go and correct the shunt so if we can apply those principles there's a lot of things that we can do to reduce anesthetic mortality without necessarily changing the choice of our drugs too much thanks very much for your time and hopefully within a week i will bring you your next podcast Welcome to this podcast series on anesthesia and intensive care. In this podcast, I'm going to deal with a question that I often get asked. I often get asked for that magic formula of anesthetic drugs we can give to a patient in order to ensure that they have a safe and successful anesthetics. And I think with this, there's a lot of myth in what answering this question. What is the safest anesthetic protocol we have? Or in actual fact, is there a safe anesthetic protocol that we could use in our patients? And I think sadly many of us are going to be disappointed with the answer. Because although the drugs we choose for the induction or pre-medication of our patients could make a difference in anesthetic outcome, it's often a very, very small difference. 
Yes, for example, if a patient has liver disease or a portosystemic shunt, benzodiazepines which enhance GABA transmission may be contraindicated. And there may be some drugs that we wouldn't want to use in a dog for heart failure. But the reality is that there's perhaps specific drugs that are contraindicated in patients. But if we look at our healthy patients, does our choice of drugs make a difference? The, the CPSAF study into perioperative small animal fatalities gives us a lot of information that we could use to answer this question. And if we have a look at when patients die under anaesthetics, when the perioperative period, we find that a very small percentage of patients actually die after pre-medication, about 1% of dogs and about 2% of cats. If we look at induction, the number of patients does increase slightly, dogs to about 6% and cats to about 8%. But if you start to work out the maths on this, you'll realize that most animals are dying in the maintenance or post-operative period. And in the maintenance period, about 46% of dogs die and 30% of cats. While in the post-operative period, that's slightly reversed with 60% of cats dying post-operatively and 47% of dogs dying post-operatively. Our drugs made a big difference perhaps in pre-medication and induction, but more of our patients are dying during maintenance and post-operatively. And it's for this reason that we should then think about our choices of drugs. If we have a look at the causes of death, by the way, by far the majority of animals die from cardiovascular causes, 36% of dogs and 24% of cats, and respiratory causes is the next biggest topic, with 18% of dogs and 28% of cats. So if we start to now have a look at why patients die and when they die, they're dying during the maintenance and post-operative period from cardiovascular and respiratory causes. And perhaps it's not so much the choice of the drugs we make, but how we look after these patients under anesthesia that becomes more important. And what we should actually think about doing is concentrating then on monitoring our patients under anesthesia and looking after their cardiovascular system and their respiratory system. A lot of animals, especially cats, are dying post-operatively that point where we turn off the vaporizer, disconnect them from the anesthetic machine, and all our attention moves on to the next patient we're going to anesthetize. So we should in actual fact have a look at this period and realize that when we finish the anesthetic, so to speak, by turning off the vaporizer, the anesthetic hasn't ended at all. We need to continue looking after those patients in the post-operative period until they've recovered continue monitoring them because often what happens is the moment we finish that anesthetic we turn off the vaporizer we take all our monitoring equipment off and that's the end of it and perhaps that's the worst thing we can do we need to look after these patients well into the post-operative period throughout maintenance and realizing that perhaps our drugs make the least amount of difference that's there Monitoring is important because we need to concentrate our monitoring onto devices that tell us about cardiovascular and respiratory function. And if we start to have a look at some of those devices, which we will talk about in other podcasts, blood pressure, for example, is an important one. We can also have a look at pulse oximetry and capnography. 
and which ones give us the best or the most important information that's out there. Sometimes it's also just our hands-on clinical skills that's absolutely crucial. The highest incidence of mortality was post-operatively in cats, and if we had a look at some of those procedures, for example, dentals feature very prominently amongst it. That classical example of a shared airway. We have our endotracheal tube in place while we play inside the cat's mouth or the dog's mouth. At the end of the procedure, of course, we have to wake the cat out, remove the tube, and does laryngeal paralysis um, play a role in this? It certainly could, because we can get irritation from throat packs, for example, on the larynx. We also extubate cats, usually slightly deeper than dogs, to try and avoid laryngeal par paralysis on extubation. But we should also monitor these cats as they wake up for laryngeal paralysis and be ready to intervene if something goes wrong. If we have a look at a device like pulse oximetry and the cat or the dog is in actual fact breathing room air in that post-operative period, it will identify hypoxia for us. The saturation will decrease and perhaps values below 95 should alert us to actually institute more monitoring. And certainly below 90 or 88% we should supplement oxygen to those patients as they wake up. This may in actual fact be more important in our geriatric patients which have changes in lung function because of age. Perhaps they're more prone to hypoxia. We extubate them. At this point in time, if you're a small patient and you're cold, you're going to start shivering. And we know that shivering, for example, can increase your oxygen consumption by up to 600%. With a massive increase in oxygen required because of the shivering process and poor ventilatory function, we do set those patients up for failure, don't we? A pulse oximeter would alert us early because the values would decrease. If the alarm values are set, we don't necessarily have to be directly looking at the device because the alarm will alert us to go and look at that patient as the values drop. They would also drop if a cat went into laryngospasm as well. So perhaps we should utilize these devices not only under anesthesia, but also in recovery. Remember, if you've got a patient on supplemental oxygen or still breathing 100% pure oxygen on an anesthetic machine, Hyperventilation will not be detected on a pulse oximeter. It is detected, however, if you're breathing room air, because saturation will fall quite quickly. So it's important to have a look at it. Capnography does tell us about ventilatory function, and it tells us about cardiac function. It's incredibly useful and fairly accurate when we've got an ET tube in place. But once we've removed the ET tube, capnography can be more difficult to monitor in our patients to monitor respiration. So in the recovery period, it's not useful, but incredibly useful during the maintenance and the early parts in the recovery period when an ET tube is still in place. Because if the animal stops breathing, it would also alarm for us. Then there's blood pressure. And blood pressure is an important parameter to measure in our patients. Blood pressure tells us a bit about cardiovascular function. Heart rate and the values that we get from systolic, diastolic and mean pressure can actually tell us more. If you think about it from a physiological perspective, blood pressure is usually one of the last things to fall as our physiological compensatory mechanisms for hypertension usually involve an increasing in heart rate, vasoconstriction and an increase in cardiac output. And once we've exerted all those possibilities of compensation, blood pressure will fall. So blood pressure in itself falls quite late. 
But if we look at the relationship between heart rate and systolic or mean blood pressure, we can work out a shock index. Paying attention to it, if heart rate is high and blood pressure is normal or no, low, we may in actual fact have a problem. If the heart rate is low and blood pressure is high, most probably everything is a lot better off. So we should pay attention to those in relationship to heart rate and blood pressure. So we should continue our monitoring into that post-operative period as well to help give our patients the best possible chances of an outcome. Also remember that we have all our hands-on monitoring to help us. Small animals will be cold. They're usually cold in the periphery as well. We should heat them up and may try and get them back to a normal body temperature in that time period. But also, if temperature doesn't distribute in their body equally, this maldistribution of temperature is also an indicator of shock. And patients who are not warming up efficiently could be an indicator of some circulatory abnormality that we're missing. The other side to that is, neurologically, they should recover in a very, very predictable fashion. From when we discontinue the anesthetic agent through extubation, getting up into sternal recumbency and becoming active. And patients that are showing delayed anesthetic recoveries require more attention. I mentioned portosystemic shunts right in the beginning, but those are animals, for example, prone to hypoglycemia. And hyperglycemia can be incredibly common in these patients. If they don't recover as predictable, remember to check their glucose. I always check their glucose before I start the anesthetic, right at the beginning when I place my gel coat, the little bit of blood that flashes back into the needle. I use that just to do a, a quick stick glucose. It sets my baseline to know where I'm going. Is it normal? Is it low? Or is it high? And based on that, I adjust the fluids. If it is low, I will add glucose to some of their maintenance fluids or put them on a maintenance um, drip, which actually, in fact, has glucose in it. And then at the end of the procedure, depending on how long it's taken or perhaps during that procedure, about every hour to two hours, I would recheck their blood glucose to make sure that it's within a normal range. But if it has been normal for all those checkpoints and they fail to recover, go back and check a glucose because it could be low. We also know that their metabolism is not normal, but looking after them is absolutely vital. And perhaps that's the most important responsibility we have as an anaesthetist, is to look after the physiology of our patients to make sure it's normal during that period of time that they cannot do it, because we've abolished a lot of their reflexes or their ability to compensate because of our anaesthetic agents. What I hope you've started to realize in this talk, that it's not so much about the drugs we choose, but it's actually how we go about looking after our patients. And the better we look after our patients, the better they will do. And yes, that does start in the preoperative period when we start to pre-medicate them. And it extends all the way through until they recover from that anesthetic become sternly recumbent, can look after their own airways and hopefully are mobile and ready to go home. We have a large choice of drugs that we can choose from. That choice is less important. What we know from, from, from evidence is to use drugs that we're familiar with rather than to use a novel or new drug that you've never tried before and don't understand what it does to our patients. I often use the example of the first heart transplant that was done. Those patients were anaesthetized on thiopentone, maintained with halothane, 
given some opioids for example and that was it and those patients did well because they understood and knew those drugs and knew what they did to the physiology of our patients and so being familiar with the drugs we use helps because we can predict what is going to happen for example isoflurane is a vasodilator it drops blood pressure we can predict that and if we're used to treating it we will almost start to manage it before it becomes a problem if we do a lot of total intravenous anesthesia for example that vasodilatation is not a problem and you can maintain a better blood pressure sometimes on intravenous anesthetics because you can avoid that vasodilatation by the same means our alpha-2 agonists are vasoconstrictors and generally will produce a better blood pressure for you it may offset some of the vasodilatation caused by isoflurane on the other hand you could use ACP which is an alpha blocker and may drop blood pressure to some extent or stop vasoconstriction from happening but at very very low doses that effect is very very small normally so we can predict the effects of our drugs and know how to manage them if we're very very familiar with the drugs that we often use and that's why sometimes when practitioners ask me for the advice I ask them what drugs do you commonly use in your patients and adjust those drugs so that they use drugs that they're comfortable with and that they know what the effects are rather than introducing them to a new system at a time when it can cause a lot more stress to them doing a procedure and worrying about the anesthetic agent that they're using so sometimes my advice is very simple use drugs that you are familiar with but maybe we can make some subtle adjustments because of underlying disease that is there the last thing that I wanted to mention in this, this, this podcast is to say correct the physiology of your patient as much as you can before the anesthetic because that will make the anesthetic considerably safer for you and easier to manage if the patient has heart disease and you've just diagnosed it and they are not stable and you're doing an elective procedure delay it stabilize their cardiovascular disease start them on appropriate medication whether that's anywhere from pimibendin for example to Lasix um, furosemide ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers etc and get them stable once they become stable it makes your anesthetic a lot easier the same is true for dogs with portosystemic shunts treat them medically and try and optimize their medical management as much as you can do before you go and correct the shunt so if we can apply those principles there's a lot of things that we can do to reduce anesthetic mortality without necessarily changing the choice of our drugs too much thanks very much for your time and hopefully within a week i will bring you your next podcast mm -hmm.